Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we come before you this morning just to thank you for your love. And Father, I pray that it would motivate our hearts to lift up and to sing of who you are and to sing of your worth and how you demonstrated your love by sending your Son to die for us. Yet when we were sinners, when we were rebellious towards you, you loved us with a deep and everlasting love. May we experience that anew, refreshed this morning, ready and willing to share that love with others. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 10. We are going to finish off this chapter today. Interesting, in God's providence, the next chapter in Mark is Palm Sunday, or is the, when Jesus marches in to Jerusalem, and today is Palm Sunday, but yet we're not there yet. So I debated whether or not to skip this portion of Scripture and just go right in it, but I figured Mark has put it in there. It's important for us to then to follow through. So calendar notwithstanding, we're in Mark chapter 10, 46 through 42, where son of David, have mercy. Have you ever tried to get somewhere important or do something important only to have someone interrupt you? Don't you love that? Here you are, you're trying to do something. It's frustrating, isn't it? There's so much demand on our time with only so little time available to us We finally become focused, we sit down, we're on the task ahead, we begin to move forward only to have someone or something interrupt our progress. You ever had that experience? Yeah, little children? Yeah. Do you ever feel like your time and energy is set to someone else's agenda? One of the keys to dealing with these interruptions is to see them for what they are, for what they truly, truly are. God's ordained moments of service, or as Dustin and I like to call them, it's sanctification stupid. In all seriousness, though, understanding the providence of God helps us understand and deal better with those interruptions that happen all the time in our lives. In my office, I have this quote to help me to remember God's providence when it comes to interruptions. The quote is, I will welcome God's interruptions. Let me say that once again. I will welcome God's interruptions in my life as the most exciting way to see God work out His plan for me. We need to recognize that. In other words, interruptions are not meant by God to make your life more difficult or to show you who's boss or to frustrate you, but rather God allows and puts interruptions in your life in order for you to worship Him by loving and serving others, those interruptions. That's important for you and I to understand. In today's passage, we find Jesus is on the road, walking towards Jerusalem, focused on the most important task in all of human history. Everything is now culminating in this one point. When God the Father interrupts Jesus, in the form of a blind man crying out for mercy. 
As a matter of review, two weeks ago, Dustin pointed out that Jesus taught that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, indicating that Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God turns everything upside down. He gives us that paradox. The way that we think things are, are not very real. It's about being last. It's about serving. To prove this point, Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to go and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus now heads towards Jerusalem and his date with the cross. Let's read the passage together. It's in Mark chapter 10, 46 through 42. And they came to Jericho and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak and springing up, he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Father, what a great story. One that many times we could just pass over trying to get to the big points of the story. But Father, this is here for us today. There is something that you want to do in the hearts of us this morning through this passage. So give us wisdom, discernment to determine what that is. Let your spirit have free reign. Would you just quell any noise or, or any disturbances moving in and out? And let us just uh, focus on your word. And let me speak the words that are edifying and that build up. And let us know the difference between my mere opinion and your truth. And may your Holy Spirit work mightily that we may respond to your word this morning. Thank you once again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's some observations about this passage i like to point out as we look at it very quickly. First, we see Jesus is still heading to Jerusalem for the ultimate time of service, the ultimate ransom. We've been working through uh, his journey from Galilee, where he did the majority of his ministry. He's now moving down towards Jerusalem. He's going to reach it, as we see in the next chapter. He's just outside of Jerusalem. The crowd walking with him is heading towards Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. What's interesting is they're walking towards Jerusalem for the Passover, not even realizing that the final Passover lamb is walking among them. What a great story when you think of that. Jericho is about five miles west of the Jordan and 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So they have a walk, they're focused. There's a journey, it's a lot uphill going towards Jerusalem. And on their journey, they pass a blind man named Bartimaeus. Now, this was a common sight in the Middle East to see a blind man along the street begging, living off the kindness of those passing by. It's similar today to those that are on the on and off ramps as we go by and they're trying to sell or they're trying to ask for things. This is something that's common to them. that We have a little bit kind of thing in a different type of way. What we see here is interesting is that the son of Timaeus calls out to the son of David. The blind man, though, this is what's interesting, is that the, he's, the blind man, along with his father, is named. 
We get their names. Now, if you look at Mark, you never see the names of the people Jesus healed. Now, you see Jairus, but it's his daughter that's healed. You see Peter's mother-in-law, but her name is never given. And so I think, why in the world is lying man is named along with his father, indicating that maybe, just maybe, this is my thought, is that the readers of Mark's gospel, the Roman church, might have known Bartimaeus. They might have known his father. There's a reason why he's named, maybe just to make it even more real to us. Jesus' fame had spread around the whole region, as Mark notes in chapter 3 of Mark, that the great crowd had followed Jesus from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and into Media and from the Jordan and from the round Tyre and Sidon. Matthew speaks of two blind men, while Mark is going to focus just on the one. And this is the last of the healing miracles that we find in Mark. So those are just some interesting facts and opinions and thoughts of the passage as we look as Jesus is walking along the road to his date, his time, his destiny for the cross when a God-ordained interruption comes in the form of a blind man. Where I want to spend my time is what this passage reveals. All these things and observations are neat and nice and, and it's good for us to understand the setting and the players, the characters, and so on and so forth. But I want to see what the passage reveals. So this passage reveals, number one, for those who like to take notes, is that Jesus' identity is revealed as the promised king. This passage reveals Jesus' identity as the promised king. Bartimaeus most likely had heard of Jesus and his healing power. Hearing that Jesus is passing by, he wastes no time in calling out to him. Bartimaeus, now put yourself as a blind man. You would spend all day, someone would lead you out to the side of the road, they would leave you there, and then you would sit, and then you would just beg for money. Could you help me? Could you help? Could you imagine living a life of that way? You couldn't work. There was no social nets that you and I think of today. Could you imagine, maybe even like today, the abuse someone like that may have and may have experienced but he's sitting on the road. He knows that there's going to be a great group of people going to Passover. Jerusalem would be filled to the max, to the rim during this holy week. And so he knows that he's at a good place. People are going to Passover, right? You think their hearts would be in the right place. So he's there with whatever, his cloak and things, and people would just throw money on him, They'd throw it at him. So you can imagine this life. And all of a sudden, maybe he's heard the stories of Jesus and how he heals. Maybe he had went to bed at night thinking, boy, I wish Jesus was here near Jericho. There's no way I can go to Jesus. Maybe one day Jesus will be coming by and maybe he could recover my sight and heal me. Maybe he had those dreams. We don't know. But you can almost imagine anyone who's ever gone through a health problem or a financial problem or some type of thing and just wish, oh, I wish there was just an answer. And then to hear of someone who could not only heal the blind, but make someone walk and bring someone back from the dead. He maybe even dreamed of this day since hearing of Jesus' miraculous exploits. But there was no way he was going to let Jesus pass by without hearing him and getting an audience. He was not going to let this opportunity pass. Hearing that Jesus of Nazareth was walking about, he cried out. Now in our journey through Mark, we have read many times of these encounters. The Apostle John even points out in his gospel that the miracles of Jesus could not even be numbered. They could not be listed. All the libraries of that known world could not even hold them. So I had to ask the question, why 
is this one then so important? Why does Mark record the story here of Bartimaeus? It seems like a transition, which it is. Jesus is on his way. Why does he stop and interrupt the flow of his thought here? Why don't we just get to Palm Sunday? Why don't we get to the cross? Why does Mark stop here to tell us a quick story of a man that you and I don't even know? Mark is getting close to the most important part of the story. Why stop and give us another story of a blind man being healed? One reason, as I snowed, it might have been the fact that Bartimaeus might have been known to the Roman church. So he's giving credence to his testimony. Maybe they knew his father, and so they would say, Oh, Bartimaeus, this is where he met Jesus. Oh, yeah, we know him. That could be one reason. Again, that's my opinion. That's not something we know for sure. However, I think one reason that I believe that Mark records this is because of his cry to Jesus when he says, Jesus, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. See, you and I have to realize that that title, son of David, is not just some phrase saying, oh, we know that you're from the genealogy of David. For there were many sons, small s's, of David. There were many from those times who could have followed their genealogy lineage back to David. But the son of David is a messianic title. And this is the first time that Mark records anyone using that title. Usually it's son of man. So let me give you a little Old Testament background on the title son of David. So take your Bibles, if you would, and join with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Now, just a little bit earlier, we read of the son of David, of how there would be a new king in our scripture reading, where he promised David that his son would be an everlasting king in Isaiah chapter 11 near the latter part of the Old Testament. If you can turn there, Isaiah chapter 11. Let's look at the first four verses. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, their days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute righteousness and justice in the land. And in those days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Ezekiel says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So the son of David had a messianic tones. They knew that the Messiah would be the son of David. He would be that promised king, that everlasting king. Now, whether Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David due to his knowledge that Jesus was the lineage or from the genealogy of David, or whether he knew that he was the Messiah, it's just simply not known to us today. But what is clear is that in Mark recording this story and putting it here for us, he does intend for his readers, the original readers of the Church of Rome, to make that connection. Jesus, is what Mark is sharing us, is the seed of David. He is the promised king. See, Jesus' full identity 
is ready to be revealed. You may remember early in Mark in chapter 8 that Peter and his disciples were told not to declare that Jesus was the Christ. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered said, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. Many times when Jesus would heal, what did he say? Be quiet. Don't reveal who I am. Many times when they would come and try to make Jesus as king, he would separate himself for he knew what was in their hearts. But here Bartimaeus says, son of David, have mercy. What we're realizing, as we will see in a couple weeks, is Jesus is ready to reveal himself as that king and to accept that designation. As he's now approached to be crucified, it's time for everyone to know who Jesus truly is. Now, all of us know Old Testament history for the most part. We know that God had appointed Saul as Israel's first king. He was given authority to rule over the people as God's representative, just as every other king and ruler, dictator, or even president that has ever been in power. Here's some things I'd like for you to know about Jesus as king. In the Old Testament, the king had authority over the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus is born to be king of the Jews, as we see in Matthew, yet he refused any attempt to make himself an earthly king. In John, we see that the people, after feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing that it was not in the right place, knowing that his time and that was ready to be revealed, took himself from that crowd. Jesus did have a kingdom whose arrival he did announce. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is, in fact, the true king of the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. And after his resurrection, Jesus was given by God the Father far greater authority over the church and over the universe. And we see in Paul's letters is that now he is the king and that every day, one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And Jesus will return to earth in power and great glory to reign over his kingdom. Wayne Gruden writes that Jesus Christ fulfilled the office of king. But in contrast to the greatest of Israelites' kings like David, Christ ruled over the entire world. Indeed, the universe, including the church, he is the consummate king who rules wisely, attentively, and with final authority and justice. In short, he rules as the God-man over the entire cosmos. And when he returns, he will deal definitively with all hindrances and obstacles to his deserved reign. At that time, he will be called King of Kings. What Mark is showing us through this story, through this interruption to this appointment with the cross, is that Jesus is the son of David. He's that promised king that they have been looking for. And it's with that thought in mind that Bartimaeus appeals to Jesus as king for an audience. And we can think of Esther in those days where, remember the story of Esther, where she could not come before the king unless he was to, unless he was, she was called. We remember that story. And many times, it's hard for us to understand, but even in these days, you just don't go and show up at the president's door, do you? You don't just show up at the White House and say, I'd like to go see the Oval Office. You know, you have to have an appointment. You have to be accepted. You have to be invited. But in this case, he appeals to Jesus as king, as the one who has all authority and says, I appeal, would you have mercy on me? He reveals himself as one who could. 
But also this passage reveals not only Jesus as king, but it also reveals the fickleness of the crowd. I think we find ourselves many times right here with this crowd. It seems like the crowd did not appreciate his shouting. They did not uh, appreciate the interruption on their holy journey for the Passover. Just leave us alone. However, we see that the crowd changes their attitudes when Jesus stops and asks for the man to come forward. There's actually two changes. If you look in this passage, there's two changes that actually happen. The first one is the crowd's attitude. It moves from discouraging the man, be silent, be quiet, stop bothering us, to one of encouragement. One moment they're upset at his insistent shouting that is disrupting their journey to Jerusalem and telling him to be silent and quiet. And the next, they are encouraging him to get up and go to Jesus. Hey, take care, be encouraged. He's calling you. So you see a fickleness. Then in one minute, there seems to be a shut up and be quiet. Then another one, come on, let's go. The second change is that of the blind man. He goes from a pathetic beggar sitting on the side of the road to an energetic follower of Christ. As you look at the past, you see that he's first sitting on the ground, begging for money, and then just crying out for mercy. And then we see him throwing off his cloak, jumping up, and heading towards Jesus and following him with all of his heart. There's the fickleness in the crowd. There's some changes. And here's what I tell you. When you meet the true king, there will be a change of heart. There will be something about us that recognizes that king. You see, the king is the one who determines who gets an audience, not the crowd, not the disciples. Now, we had saw earlier that many times Jesus said, do not prevent the little ones. Do not stop people to come to me. He's always getting on them. As you're trying to, to manage me, stop. Let them come to me. And once again, it's not necessarily the disciples that's pointed out, but just the crowd. But it's the king who determines who gets an audience. I could imagine as they're walking down Jerusalem and this crowd is heading with them, there's probably many people that are jostling to get a look at Jesus. And just like the woman who wanted just to touch him, there might have been some of those cases as well. There are probably many people who would want to sidle up to him and, and get a look. There was no selfies in those days, but they could just get close enough to say, hey, look, see who I am there. Maybe there's someone that wanted his attention, wanted to ask him a question. Maybe they too wanted healing. This man had no chance. Hence he cried out, have mercy. And the king determines, I'm going to give this man an audience. This interruption is God-ordained. This moment is a moment for me to meet him. Sadly, this crowd heading towards Jerusalem to worship, a time of remembrance of when God rescued them from their slavery, when he healed them as a people, they could not or would not take time to even care for one of their own people. Don't you wonder, why is it that not anyone there stopped and said, here, let's go to Jesus. Let's see this healing. They couldn't be even bothered with this man. This people of the book could not even recall the message of Zechariah. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah? It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. 
In Zechariah chapter 7, we see that God has commanded them to live in a certain way, to view people in a certain way. But yet these people of the book, the people whose minds and hearts were in worship, if you go to Psalms, you'll see the Song of Ascents. They were singing these Psalms as they were moving towards Jerusalem. Their mind was fixed on Scripture, but yet their hearts were far from God. Look at Zechariah chapter 7. Look at verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and what? Mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the what? Poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. These people would have known the scripture. This, as they were walking and singing the Song of Ascent, this should be one of the things that was in their hearts as they saw these types of people. Look at verse 11. But God writes, But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stopped their ears that they might not what? Hear. You can almost imagine they're walking. Oh, I wish he'd just shut up. Don't look at him, don't look at him, don't make eye contact, which is as, as if that would really matter with him, I suppose. Look at verse 12. This is, I love how, he, how, how this is translated. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger comes from the Lord of hosts. Why does great anger come? Because we have hardened our hearts towards those that need mercy. I'm here to tell you that many times we're just as fickle as that crowd. You and I should also follow these commands. Our heart should be towards the poor, to the sojourner, towards the widows, towards the orphans. If anything, these people, these Israelites, these Jews, their history should have taught them to consider this man not as a rude interruption, but as an opportunity to love and serve one of their own. They had been judged for their hardness of heart. The Romans right then and there served as God's judgment as punishment, just as the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks before them. Fortunately for Bartimaeus, Jesus was not above interruptions. But see, you and I are like this many times. We pass by people who need mercy, and we plug our ears and say, I can't hear you. We avert our eyes and do not see them. And I'm not just talking about maybe the homeless population, which we should uh, be, have a heart for them, but I'm talking with those within our church. Those within our families. Our hearts are diamond hard and we judge. And we ignore their cries and pleas, pleas of help. There are times that we're fickle. There's times that which we ignore them, but yet then there are times that we help them and we turn it on and off. So I'd like to ask you a question. Who are you in this story? Are you the crowd before or are you the crowd after? I pray that you be the crowd after. For as soon as Jesus said stop, 
let me see that man. As soon as he had turned his attention to that man, then all eyes were to him, and then they were tuned to what Jesus. So let me share with you today, who is Jesus looking on with compassion today? Who is it that he wants us to focus on today? What is it that Jesus wants us to make important today? For them, it was to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. But Jesus, who had a date with destiny, who also wanted to get to Jerusalem, said this interruption is a God-ordained moment for me to worship God by loving and serving this man. He made a difference in this man that you and I could not even comprehend. And I would share with you today that God wants you to make a difference in someone's life today. There is someone crying for mercy. Do we see them? Do we hear them? Do we look as Jesus looked and do what Jesus did? Not that we can heal anyone who's blind, but we have the light and the truth that can take someone that's spiritually blind and make them see. Where are you in this story? The third thing that the story reveals is not only Jesus' identity as the promised king, not only the fickleness of the crowd, but it also reveals Jesus' mercy. For he is the king. And he is a king that will execute justice and righteousness, but he's also a king who can give mercy. Amen? He's a God who loves. You and I, our actions, our rebellion demands God's justice. It demands God's righteousness. We're all guilty, but yet he shows us mercy. In verse 52, we read that there is an immediate healing. Jesus chooses to show mercy to the one the crowd initially rejected. Jesus sees much deeper into this man's heart and he chooses to give him sight. Not because of who he is or what he's done, but because God chooses him. Once he was blind, now he sees. Once he was poor, now God's going to give him something much greater. Once all his life was just purposely just asking for money, Jesus is going to give him a purpose. Jesus notes that this man had faith. He trusted that Jesus was the king. He trusted that Jesus could give him mercy, so he cried out for it. He was the son of David. He would grant him mercy. He would be capable of restoring his sight. You see, Jesus, the promised king, is a merciful king. We need a king of justice. We need a king of righteousness. Our world cries out for justice, does it not? Our hearts cry out for it. But in the same tone, it cries out for mercy. It cries out for mercy. See, Jesus fully understands the command in Deuteronomy chapter 15, where the Father informs Moses and Israel that there will always be people that are poor in the land. He says, but I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your, law, in your land. Our cry should also be, have mercy on me. And that's what I would like to see yourself. That's what I would encourage you. See yourself as the Bartimaeus of seeing the king and say, Lord, have mercy. Help me. Strengthen me. Restore me. Help me recover my sight. God is a God of mercy. In 1 Chronicles 16, he writes, So give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures what? Forever. God is a God of mercy. 
Bartimaeus is set free from blindness. He now freely follows Jesus. The opening of the eyes of the physically blind is in stark contrast to those whose eyes are blind spiritually. In this story, it seems like really it was the crowd that was blinded. Bartimaeus was the one who could truly see. These same people that were walking with Jesus, as we're going to see in the next chapter, are the ones who are going to say, Oh, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the king. And there will be many of those who will say, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But Bartimaeus was able to see, Son of David, have mercy on me. So what do we do with this? Well, I think it's very clear for us is that we need to recognize that Jesus is king and we need to submit to King Jesus with cries of have mercy. Psalms 123 says it clearly, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our day should begin with those phrases as we walk through the day, Lord, have mercy on me. Give me your grace. Give me a greater measure of faith. Though you and I may not be physically blinded, we have all been spiritually blinded. John MacArthur comments that spiritual blindness refuses to admit its ignorance and it rejects the light and results in doom. There are people, not only ourselves, but people around us that are blinded. Once you and I were blinded, once we were lost, once we were children of disobedience, but Ephesians tells us that God, being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have saved. We are children of mercy. We are vessels of God's grace and mercy. And that should cause us to submit to King Jesus. It also causes us to recognize that He's given us mercy once. He will continue to give mercy as children of Him. You and I need to continually have a life that cries out for God's mercy each and every day. So let me ask you this. What do you need to cry out for God's mercy today? In what way are you a beggar, blinded, sitting on the road, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, where your next strength is going to come from. What do you need to cry out for God for mercy? Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe there's some of you that are struggling and you just say, I just need to have more faith. God, have mercy. Help me get through this. And let me tell you, there are times that God does not give healing. There are many times that God just gives you strength to get through the illness and the health you have. And even that is God's mercy. Maybe you need God's mercy some for some emotional healing, some bitterness, some resentment, some anger, some hurt that you have. When the kids were young, from time to time, I would ask a series of questions. I would say, is there anyone that you hurt today? Is there any way that you hurt someone? And then I would ask the question, have you been hurt by someone today? Is there any anger, resentment, or bitterness hold up in your heart? And if there was, let's pray for that person. Why? Because we know that that dictates so many times whether or not we could love each other. Maybe it's spiritual healing. Maybe you just need to pray for a greater measure of faith. 
Maybe you just need to say, Lord, I need mercy. Give me your mercy. I am fighting a sin that is too difficult for me. You feel like it's so strong and it's knocking you down. And you're saying, Lord, have mercy. Restrain this evil. Lord, take this from me. We cry out the Lord's prayer. Uh, protect me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one. The Bible tells us if we can resist the devil, he'll flee from us. But it starts with a cry of mercy. Scripture tells us that he will just be with us and he'll guide us and strengthen us during their times. What am I saying? Is that you and I, as Christians and believers, that this King Jesus has promised us an audience and he will give us mercy if we cry out. So not only do we submit to King Jesus with cries of have mercy, but also you and I need to compel people to come to Jesus for mercy. Don't be like the crowd. Don't view people as interruptions. Don't view people as distractions. Don't see those people as interruptions, but see them as God-ordained moments to worship Him by loving and serving them. Compel them. Don't tell people to be quiet and shut up. Don't try to silence them. But would you be there with them and say, take heart? He is calling you. Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 14, Jesus told, the, told him in a parable, he says, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. Why? That my house may be full. You and I are in the business as God's ambassadors of compelling people, come to the king. I know the one who will give mercy. If your marriage is in a rut. There's life, the trouble is going on. Financially, you're distraught. Things are just all over. Come to the one who can give you mercy. Hebrews 13 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In James chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? How is that mercy? So also faith by itself, it does not have works. James tells us it is dead. So our job is not only to submit, but it's to bring others. And say, let me share with you and introduce you to the one who showed me mercy. That mercy is available to you. I pray this morning that you'd see Jesus as the son of David, the king, the one who is not only open to give us an audience, but is desirous and willing to show with us his mercy. For he loves us with an unfathomable love. Would you rest on that this morning? Would you put your faith in the king who desires to show mercy? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd ask for you to take a moment and just to pause, to consider, to pray. What is it that God is calling you from this message? And where do you see yourself in this message? Maybe you're the crowd. Maybe you're Bartimaeus. But where are you this morning? And would you ask God, the Holy Spirit, to work in your heart, that we may submit to the one who shows mercy, that we may ask for mercy ourselves, in the same way, giving mercy to others, by compelling them to meet and submit to the King who loves us. Father, we come before you, and I thank you for this passage of Scripture. 
It's so easy to go through these and, and think, oh, that's just another miracle. Lord, we thank you for the life of Bartimaeus. I don't know why you included him personally by name in this passage of Scripture. It's not really the point, but knowing that he's a real person. And Father, at a point in history, in a real time of history, on a real road, in a real city, Lord, you reached out to one who cried for mercy, demonstrating, Lord, that you even hear the most poorest of us all. Lord, the one that's most ignored of all. Lord, may that give us heart. May that encourage us to come before you. Give us the same faith that says, Son of David, have mercy. And we thank you for your mercy that has been given so richly towards us. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.